0: If you remember the evening of our first lesson, we did a very quick survey of the biblical covenants, the covenants that scripture records for us. We debated or at least talked about the covenant with Adam which theologians debate about because of Hosea 6:7, and then we looked at the ones that are not debatable, that are very clear, such as the covenant with Noah, And then following that covenant was the covenant with Abraham. And following that covenant was the covenant with Israel through Moses. And following that covenant was the covenant with David, the great king. And as we discussed those covenants, we took a quick look at how those covenants pointed to the new covenant and the coming of Christ. If you remember, we saw how the Noahic covenant, the covenant with all of creation, that God would never again destroy creation by a flood, that that prepared the way for Messiah, because if God were, uh, if he decided to destroy mankind every time we became corrupt, there would be no opportunity for Messiah to come because... Every day that went by, God would have the opportunity to destroy people. So that covenant uh, paved the way for the coming of Christ by preserving sinful mankind until the promised one could come. So we saw how that pointed to Christ. Then we looked at the Abrahamic covenant briefly, and we talked about how the New Testament tells us plainly that when God said all the nations of the earth will be blessed in Abraham, that promise was fulfilled in Christ. And we will look at that tonight in more detail. The Abrahamic covenant clearly talks and speaks to and looks forward to the coming of Christ and the new covenant. And we talked about how the covenant with Moses, or I'm sorry, with David, also pointed to the coming of Christ because The New Testament tells us that when God said to David, one of your descendants will forever sit on the throne, Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. He's sitting on the throne not of earthly Jerusalem, but on heavenly Jerusalem. He is reigning over not just a piece of land in the Middle East, but over all heaven and all earth. And so we saw quickly how these covenants foreshadowed, and prepared and looked toward the coming of Christ and the new covenant. But if you remember, we skipped over the covenant with Moses. We did not spend any time looking at the Israeli covenant or the covenant with Israel. And the question that we're going to ask tonight is, how does that covenant point to Christ? How does it prepare the way for Christ? Now, before we get into this, there is something that we need to make sure everyone understands. We've alluded to this in past lessons, but I want to make sure this is clear. And in order to do this, I want us to look together at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 13. Here again in this book where Moses is revealing to the next generation, the young generation of Israelites who are about to enter into the promised land, reminding them of the covenant terms, in Deuteronomy 4, verse 13, he makes this statement. He says, So he, that is God, declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, comma, that is, comma, the Ten Commandments, semicolon, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. It is crucial that we understand this. The covenant that God made with Israel is explicitly and specifically referred to here as the Ten Commandments and the two, uh, two tablets of stone. So we need to etch this in our thinking when we read the New Testament, the Old Covenant Is the law of Moses? Is the Ten Commandments? Is the two tablets of stone? Those terms are synonymous. And I stress this because as part of our purpose in this class to uh, show the teaching of new covenant theology in contrast to covenant theology and dispensational theology, our covenant theology brothers would say to us that the law of the Old Testament is divided into three parts. There is the ceremonial laws, the ritual laws, the laws talking about the sacrificial system and the priesthood. There is the civil aspect of the laws. that give Israel their national requirements, and there is the moral law, the Ten Commandments. That threefold distinction that they make is never made in the scripture anywhere. It is an arbitrary distinction that they make based on their theological presuppositions. But what I want you to be aware of when you read the New Testament scriptures, when it says something about the law or the Old Covenant, I just read to you from Deuteronomy 4.13, the old covenant, the law, is the same thing as the Ten Commandments or the two tablets of stone. So those terms all mean the same thing. They refer to the same thing. God made a covenant with Israel, and as an aspect of that covenant, he gave them stipulations, their part of keeping the covenant. That's the Ten Commandments, which were written down on the two tablets of stone, the law of Moses. So keep that in your thinking as we look at our, our text tonight and as you read the New Testament. It will help you from falling into some theological traps that cannot be sustained from the Scripture. Okay, with that as some background, let's turn our attention now to what is or was the purpose of the Old Covenant. You remember what Peter called that covenant. It was a relentless, overwhelming, unbearable yoke on the backs of the necks of him and the other apostles and all of the Jewish forefathers. He said none of us could bear this yoke. And God, of course, knew they would not be able to bear that yoke. So why in the world did he give it? Why did he lay upon the people of Israel this covenant that he knew for certain they would break and bring upon themselves the devastating, overwhelming curses that we talked about last week that would lead to their absolute certain destruction? Well, we don't have to guess. We don't have to speculate, we don't have to put together our theological heads and come up with something. The New Testament tells us clearly why God established this covenant. And the first place we're going to look is in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's the passage that we began with at the start of this series. If you remember in this chapter, Paul is comparing the new covenant with the old covenant. And we will come back to this again and again. But tonight I want to pick up with verse 6, where God, uh, Paul says that God made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. The NAS at least translates this as servants of the new covenant. If you have one of the other uh, popular English translations, it says ministers of the new covenant. It is the word diakonos. That may sound familiar to you. We get our English word deacon in the office of deacon from this family of words. We know what a servant is or a minister Often we think of pastors as ministers because we serve the people of the church by proclaiming the word of God. We call other people who serve in the church ministers. In fact, we would argue that everybody in the church is a minister. All of us are called to serve. And so we understand the use of this word servant or minister. And Paul says that he and the other apostles were ministers or servants of this new covenant. Then he uses the same word in verses 7 and 9 to speak of the Old Covenant. And he says in verse 7 about the Old Covenant that it was a ministry of death. And in verse 9 he calls it a ministry of condemnation. Notice the word Ministry, it's a form of the same word for servant. We think of ministries, we know lots of Christian organizations that have the the term ministries in their name. We think of campus ministries that have a particular purpose to serve college campuses with the gospel. We think of missions organizations that are ministries. Uh, We think of organizations that help poor children in other parts of the world. All of these are various ministries. They are special services, service oriented organizations that have a clear purpose. That's what the idea of ministry is. It's serving with a purpose. Paul calls the Old Covenant a service, a ministry. But he says it's a ministry of death and a ministry of condemnation. Does that strike you as odd that he would consider this covenant with all of the harsh curses that we talked about last time? He uses the word ministry regarding those curses and the weight, the unbearable yoke of that covenant. So as we think about the old covenant, we need to think of it as a service to Israel. By proclaiming their condemnation and announcing their death, Paul says, the law served the people of Israel. So our question is, how? What was the point or the purpose of that ministry? Again, we are not left to speculate. The New Testament tells us. In the third chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans, at the end of a section where Paul speaks clearly that all Gentiles are sinners and all Jews are sinners because no Jew has obeyed God, no Gentile has obeyed God, at least not with perfection, And he's concluding this entire section, preparing the way for the gospel. And in the midst of this, in verse 19, he says, We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. That's the Jews so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Again, he's already said the Gentiles are guilty before God. The Jews are guilty because they broke the law. Everybody's accountable. No one has anything to say in their defense when they stand before God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes knowledge of sin. Here the apostle is telling us the purpose, the way that the ministry of death served the Jews was to reveal to them their unrighteousness, to show them they were indeed sinners, to explain to them that they have need of justification. That is a very important word in the scripture and in the gospel and in any discussion of salvation. Justification is a word that means to be declared righteous or to declare someone righteous. It's a term that belongs in the courtroom where the judge will render his verdict righteous or unrighteous. And what Paul is saying is every Jew and every Gentile, when he stands before the tribunal of God, will be declared unrighteous because we've all sinned. Paul here says in order to prepare the Jews for their need of justification and to cement that, God gave them the law with the Ten Commandments and those paragraphs and pages and chapters and even entire books of other commands that they didn't keep to show them they were sinners. They needed a Savior. That was one purpose, one way this covenant served the Jews by proclaiming their death and condemnation. In chapter 5 of Romans, we find another purpose given. This one is somewhat surprising. After Paul engages in this fascinating and profound discussion of Adam and how all mankind is regarded as sinful because of Adam's one sin. Then he begins to talk about how Jesus and his one act of obedience brings righteousness to us, brings salvation to us. And in the midst of this, or toward the end of it rather, in verse 20 of chapter 5, Paul says, the law came in so that, that so that is a very important word, It's introducing purpose, so that the transgression would increase." Think about that. Paul here is telling us that God gave the law to Israel not to curb their sinning, not to restrain their sinning, but to actually provoke their sin, to cause them to sin all the more. Now, at first glance, that seems odd to us, or at least it does to me. But you see, as we're going to discover in just a moment more in depthly, the way the law served Israel was to point out their sin and to cause them to sin more so that they would abandon the old covenant in terms of hoping for justification and righteousness, and turn to the Savior. And in that way, the Old Covenant served Israel. Now, the passage that deals with this most expansively in the New Testament is Galatians chapter 3. And that's where we're going to spend the remainder of our time tonight. I wish we had the time to spend three or four hours going through this because that's probably what it would take to unpack everything that is here. But we're not going to take three or four hours, Lord willing, and we're not going to carry this over till next week because I don't want to lose the flow of the passage. So we're going to try to uh, get everything we can out of this chapter in our sitting tonight. But let's begin by kind of catching a glimpse of what's going on here. The first thing we need to know about this chapter is what the blessing of Abraham is. What is it that Abraham was looking for and expecting? Look with me at the verses 6 through 9 of Galatians 3, where Paul says, Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, therefore Be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. That is a profound section we could spend a long time just wrestling with and learning from that section. What Paul is talking about here is that God made promises to Abraham, and specifically he said, in you, all the families, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Paul tells us what God meant by that promise. And just reading the Old Testament would not show this to you. This is new information. This is part of the mystery that he talks about in Ephesians 3 that was hidden, that is now revealed. Paul says that that promise to Abraham that all the nations would be blessed in him was God saying to him, he would one day bless the Gentiles by granting them justification by faith. Did you catch that? Abraham, he said, look out. At the stars in heaven, count them if you can. And Abraham's just going, one, two, three, four, five. I don't know how far he got before he lost count. But God said, okay, stop counting. You can't get them all. I want you to know you're going to have more children, more descendants than there are stars in the sky. And the text says that Abraham believed God and God counted that to his record as righteous. Now he's just before God. He believed, he had faith and the promise of God and God declared him righteous right then he was justified by faith not by his works not by obedience but by his believing the promises of God then God said I'm going to give you so many descendants that are, and you're going to be a blessing to all the earth all nations and what Paul tells us is that was talking about the gospel That was talking about the advent of Christ and the message being taken throughout the world of justification by faith in the gospel, in the message of Christ. This is profound. So then he says in verse 9, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. We will come back to that at the end. So the blessing of Abraham that is primarily of concern in this passage is justification being declared righteous by faith. Now, he also ties together the blessing of Abraham with the promise of the coming of the Spirit, but we will, uh, for time's sake, we will move past that for now. Then in verses 10 and following, he begins to talk about the curse of the Old Covenant, which we looked at last time. Listen to what he says. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse... Did you catch the totality, the universality of what he's saying here? As many as are of the works of the law. Everyone, every Jew who is a member of that covenant, of the works of the law, they're under a curse. Why? Because they all broke the covenant. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. He's saying again, the scriptures did prophesy of justification by faith, even if that was not the central theme. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, quote, he who practices them shall live by them. So he's setting up the contrast, the righteousness that comes by faith and the righteousness that uh, belongs to someone from keeping the law. That other one, the latter one, is a problem because no one keeps the law. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. If you're going to understand the book of Galatians, you have to understand who the pronouns we or us refer to. It refers to the Jews. Whenever you're reading the book of Galatians and you see we or us think Jews, and when you see you think the Galatians, the Gentiles, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He took upon himself as he was hanging there the wrath of God, that belonged to unbelieving Israel, he brought it upon himself so that the Jews who believed the gospel could be forgiven because now they don't have the curses of the old covenant to be concerned with. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of a Spirit through faith. And again, there's, there's a lot in those two verses that we just don't have time to get into tonight. We may come back to this at a future time. Starting in verse 15, we pick up The main thrust of the argument as to how it pertains to the purpose of the old covenant. He says, brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. What does that mean? Well, he's just giving a human analogy, an illustration that anybody can understand. Suppose that I called up Fisk Lawnscapes and I said, Ben, I'd like you to come out and give me a bid on mowing my lawn every week for the three months of the summer, June, July, and August. And so he agrees that uh, for every week for those uh, three months, he will send his crew out to mow my lawn and we agree that uh, I will pay him hundred dollars a month and we write up a contract and he is obligated to mow my lawn those three months every week. I'm obligated to pay him $300. We read it, we agree, and we both sign on the dotted line. Then he leaves and, and I go play golf. Well, let's say that in the middle of July, I call him up and say, hey man, why would not you keep in your end of the bargain? And he says, what, haven't my guys been out there? Well, yeah, they've been out to cut my grass, but they didn't trim my trees. They didn't get all the dandelions out of my yard. And they didn't build the retaining wall with a nice little trickling waterfall that I'd ask for. And he says, well, you didn't put that in the contract. And I say, yes, I did. After you left, I started writing. And I wrote in there, dandelion removal, tree trimming, nice little trickly waterfall. It's right here in my contract. He would say, no, 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 that's not how it works. Once we have agreed and established this covenant, this contract, and signed on the dotted line, it's set. You can't dismiss it. You can't nullify it. You can't add to it. You can't change it. It's set. That's the point Paul's making, even in human terms, even in our relationships. When someone has made an agreement and ratified it, it's set. And nothing that happens later can alter that contract. So, he says... In verse 17, what I'm saying is this, the law which came 430 years later, that is after the covenant with Abraham, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. God made a covenant with Abraham. He said, I am going to bless you. He sealed it. Remember, we talked about the smoking oven walking through the pieces Of the animals signifying God is putting his deity on the line I will do this Abraham did not go through it was not a bilateral covenant God said I'm gonna do this period it's been ratified it's a promise set in stone so Paul says whatever happens later 430 years later between God and Israel by giving the law The covenant that cannot do anything to the promises to Abraham because that covenant with Abraham is already signed on the dotted line, it's done, it's settled. So he says, If the inheritance, this is verse 18, if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Now he's just reasoning with them from a very logical perspective. The inheritance is either based on law or it's based on a promise. Either what God has promised to do for Abraham is a promise through and through, or things have changed and now it's dependent upon them keeping the law, the Israelites. It says either or, it can't be both. Think of it this way. If I tell my three children that when your mother and I die, whatever we own will become yours. It will be passed on, I will write a a last will and testament and I will put your names on it and you will get whatever we have. That is a promise to them, that is an inheritance given to my children based only on promise. But suppose I wrote in that last will and testament, they will receive this inheritance, they will receive whatever uh, estate we have, if they all graduate from college with at least a 3.0 grade uh, GPA. Now, their inheritance is not based upon promise. It's not theirs simply because I said it would be theirs. Now, they have to do something. Their inheritance is contingent upon keeping the law, my law. This is what I require of you. If you keep it, you will receive the blessing. If you don't, you won't. Do you see the difference? That's what Paul is suggesting. He says either God promised to Abraham that he would receive his inheritance only on the promise, or it was based on law, this law that came 430 years later. It cannot be both ways. Well, he doesn't, again, leave us to guess. He tells us at the end of verse 18, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. The promise of a multitude of descendants, the promise of justification of being declared righteous was not contingent upon Abraham or anybody else keeping any commands. It was based solely and exclusively on God's promise to bring it about. So the question that Mr. Feinstein in the back row is going to ask is why did God make the law? Why did he create this covenant with Israel? If God was going to do what he said he would do and it's not contingent upon the the law keeping, then why make this covenant at all? Why establish this relationship with the people of Israel? That's what any Jew would be asking Paul at this point. Verse 19, you see he anticipates that question. Why the law then? It was added, Paul says, because of transgressions. That is an interesting phrase. Now, he does not elaborate here. He kind of explains it a, a little further down, which we'll get to in a moment. But think of what we've already seen. The law was given to reveal to Israel their sin and to provoke more sin, So the Jews saying, "So you're telling me that God made this covenant with Israel with all these laws and these harsh curses, just so He could wipe them out, because he knew they would disobey, And he was up there saying, "I'm going to make this so hard that I can't wait till they trip and fall so I can let them have it." Is that the character of God? Is that what we see in Scripture? No. Paul says at the end of verse 19, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. The law was given because of transgressions to show their sin, to provoke their sin until the promised seed would come. Does that mean the law is in effect until all of those descendants show up? No. No. We skipped over verse 16. Go back there now with me. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Now Paul, like any good theologian, loves fine distinctions. He loves to pick words apart and be very clear and say, it doesn't say that, it says this. That's what he does. Look, he says he does not say and to seeds, plural. The promises to Abraham and to his not seeds, one seed. Referring not to many, but to one. Quote, and to your seed, singular, that is, Christ. When God made promises to Abraham and to his descendants, his ultimate meaning in that promise, the real Fulfillment that he was speaking of was not descendants, plural, one descendant. uh, Christ. Promised to Abraham and his seed, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. What Paul tells us here is the law came because of transgressions until Messiah comes, until that seed, that descendant comes. Verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Are these two in opposition? Is the law and the gospel, are they at odds? May it never be, he said, the strongest Greek phrase for absolutely, positively, no way. Here's why. It says, for if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. Catch the meaning here. When God created this covenant and established his relationship with Israel, and he gave them the law, what that law did not give them was the ability to keep that law. They could not become righteous under this covenant because they lacked the power to obey. If God had given a covenant and included with it the ability to obey, then we would have two opposing means or ways of justification. We would have some people being justified by keeping the law and they obey and they keep the terms of the covenant and God says you're righteous because you've obeyed perfectly and over here there are some people who are righteous by believing the promises of God and these two would be in opposition but Paul says no 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 no." the reason they're not opposed to one another is because there is no ability given to the Israelites to keep the law there's only one means of justification that is not through the law it is through faith the two are not opposed in fact The law is a servant, a minister to the gospel of faith. They're not at odds. They work hand in hand. Look at what he says in verse 22. But the scripture, that does not refer to the Old Testament here. It's the word graphe, the writing. It's the same word and same expression that Moses uses several times when God writes the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments. It's not the whole scripture he's speaking of. He's talking about the law, the Ten Commandments, the tablets of stone. They have shut up everyone under sin. That everyone is all the Jews. The Old Covenant, the tablets of stone, have shut up everyone under sin, all the Jews under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The purpose of that law was to bring the Jews to their knowledge of sin so they would call out for a Savior. That's how it served. That's how it ministered to them. Going on, he says, but before faith came, that is, before the gospel came, before the object of their faith, Christ, came, we, who is we in Galatians? We We Jews were kept in custody under the law. That's a word that means to be put under guard, under lock and key. It's used sometimes of guards posted surrounding a city and no one gets in or out That's what Paul says the law did for the Jews. It kept them surrounded by these uh, guards. You couldn't get out of the covenant. You couldn't go anywhere. He uses a similar phrase. He says, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. That's sort of hemmed in. So the Jews had a fence around them with guards posted all around, and they couldn't get out from under the law until Christ came. He uses a third metaphor for the law. Verse 24, therefore, the law has become our tutor. When you think of tutor in our day, you think of a private teacher. If a child is struggling with math or science, you might look for someone who has some expertise in one of those fields and hire that person to come and privately teach your child at home. That's not what this word tutor is talking about. It is the Greek word pedagogue, or "pedagogue." And in antiquity, the pedagogue was not so much an instructor as a disciplinarian. This person would be hired, usually it was a slave, he would be brought in and he would be assigned to a kid the word literally means boy leader, a leader of the boy. He would be assigned to this kid and if the kid walked out the front door, there was the pedagogue by his side and he went with them everywhere. And on school days, he made sure that that kid did not stop and goof around somewhere. He made sure he made it all the way to the classroom. Then, when the class started, the pedagogue would stand next to the child with his ruler in his hand, waiting for the kid to wander off mentally or start talking to his neighbor or daydream or cause strife for the teacher. And he was there with his rod to wrap him on the knuckles or wrap him on the back of the head or do whatever he had to to get the boy to pay attention and learn. And it was his job to basically train up the child teach him morality, instruct him in self-control and self-discipline and how to respect elders and so forth. He was responsible for the well-grooming of the kid. He was a disciplinarian. Paul says that is the role the law played for the Jews. It was there constantly every time they strayed to the right or to the left to bring the rod. They would commit idolatry and the law was there to pronounce judgment upon them. Babylonians are coming. Assyrians are coming. Persians are coming. Somebody is coming to destroy you. Every time they committed murder or adultery or any of the acts of disobedience, the law was there to say, you are in error. You are disobeying God. You are breaking his covenant. And so the imagery here is that Israel was underage. They were minors. They were not yet mature, and they needed this harsh disciplinarian to keep them straight and to punish them when they went astray. That's the purpose of the law, Paul says. That's what it did. That was its job. That's how it ministered to the Jews by holding over their head death and condemnation constantly. He says, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. God was not standing up in heaven just waiting and hoping to have the opportunity to bring down the crushing blow on Israel. He gave them the law with all of its weighty curses and unbearable yoke to lead them to Christ, to cause them to break the law and realize they could not keep it. Therefore, they were under its curse and to provoke them to cry out to him for mercy. And when the Savior came to believe in him and be forgiven and justified, And what did they do? They said, we don't need a savior. We are righteous. Led by the Pharisees, they pronounced to the whole world and especially to Christ, we are righteous. Don't talk to us about deliverance from sin. Don't talk to us about the need of forgiveness and justification. We are God's people. We are righteous. And Jesus kept telling them they were sinners. They were whitewashed tombs with dead men's bones inside. And finally, they killed their Savior. By and large, they refused to accept or acknowledge their need of the Messiah for salvation. But Paul says, this is why we were given the law. This was its purpose, to lead us to Christ so we might be justified. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the pedagogue. Now that the object for which the law was pointing, the very end goal of everything in the law has come, we're not under the pedagogue anymore. We don't need the disciplinarian. Christ is here. And then he begins to explain some of the glory of the new covenant in Christ. He says, you are all sons of God. You. Who's you in Galatians? The Gentiles. The Galatian believers You are sons of God. He's not suddenly bringing in a new dynamic or a new doctrine here, talking about sons of God. He means the descendants of Abraham. (coughs) Those promised to Abraham. You are God's children because of faith. For you were all baptized with, uh, into Christ, and as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you've clothed yourselves. It's like putting on a cloak, a robe. Here's Christ, and you took him off the, off the hook, and you wrapped yourself up in him. You're a son of God because you are immersed in the son of God. That's good news. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Now, does Paul need a a gender lesson here? Does he not understand anymore that there really are differences between boys and girls? No. He's talking in terms of God's plan of redemption. Don't think any longer of there being Jews and non-Jews. Christians living in the 21st century, those of you who have been influenced by dispensational theology, hear the words of Paul here. Don't think any longer in terms of a distinction between Jew and Gentile. Because in God's mind there is no longer that distinction. And he doesn't look at us and say, men this and women that in terms of his plan of redemption. He doesn't divide us into social spheres. All are one in Christ. Now all that matters in the world, all that matters as far as the people of God is you're either in Christ, part of the new covenant, or you're out of Christ. That's the only distinction. You're either cloaked in him and therefore his child, or you're not, and you are his enemy. No more distinctions. And then he says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. God's promises to Abraham when he said, look up and start counting the stars, and I'm gonna give you more kids than you can count up there. Do you realize what Paul just said? If you believe the gospel, If you love Christ, you are one of those stars, a recipient of every blessing promised to Abraham. It is no longer about nationality. Abraham's children has nothing to do with biological descendants. You are heirs of his promise. You are his children if you believe the gospel. That's us. Every Christian on the face of the earth is one of those stars promised to Abraham. And that is part of the glory of the new covenant. It's not based on biological anything. It's not based on law keeping. It's not about obedience. It's not a covenant that has harsh weighty curses, we have been justified, declared righteous by faith in Christ. We are Abraham's offspring. We are sons and daughters of God, and we will dwell in the eternal promised land that the Hebrew writer tells us Abraham was looking forward to. That's part of the glory of the new covenant. And what a purpose the old covenant served for Israel, those who believed at least, to expose their sin, to provoke their sin, to show them their death and condemnation before God and open their eyes to the fact that He was providing a Savior that would forgive them for every offense against the law of God. That was a purpose that was gracious we talked about this i can't remember if it was q a or if it was uh, during a session covenant theology argues that there's one covenant and all these covenants that up here are just different administrations of the one covenant of grace and they argued that the old covenant is a covenant of grace and i asked the question how can that be there's no room there you break the law you die we need to make a careful distinction here the terms of the covenant were not gracious They were relentless. Disobey and suffer the curses. But Paul is telling us there was a gracious purpose in giving the covenant. As a pedagogue, it was to lead them to their need of the new covenant in the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of their sins.